Good morning. Good morning. If you have a Bible with you, I would invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 56. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. Isaiah 56, verses 1 to 8. This is the reading of God's word. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, who hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. To the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, and hold fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be back with you guys. For those of you who do not know who I am, my name is Daniel. My mom and dad are Peter and Natasha Golan. So it's a, it's a joy always to come and hear what God has been, or see what God has been doing here and, and the things that they've been telling me about. And, and I'm excited to bring to you this morning, Isaiah chapter 56, verses 1 to 8. Before we jump into it, let me just pray for our time one more, t- one more time. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. And now, Lord, I pray, would we be people who stand and sit under your word. God, help us to have open hearts and minds and ears to receive what you have for us this morning. Father, I pray, humble us and help us to have your heart. God, we need you here this morning at work in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yad Vashem. 
Yad Vashem. It, it's actually Hebrew. It's uh, actually, we get it from verse 5. It means a monument and name. Yad Vashem. And it's also, though, the name of the Holocaust Museum in Israel. The, that museum exists, they say, to preserve the memory of the six million Jews who were killed during World War II, which is two-thirds of all the Jews in the world at the time. They have a policy where they say they believe there is no other event in the history of our understanding like the Holocaust. And in many ways, I actually agree with them. My wife and I had the opportunity to visit, along with the rest of my family, the Holocaust Museum a number of years ago. And it's an incredible museum. You, you kind of begin at the top of this ramp and you wind your way through the museum and you work your way chronologically and you hear the stories of these real people. You see real hurt and real pain and real tragedy, and you kind of get lost in the moment. We were there so long that it was actually closing time, and so we quickly ran our way down the remainder of this kind of ramp, and we made it into this final room. And this room is called the Hall of Names. And in this room, there are pictures of deceased and murdered Jews from, from floor to ceiling. There's a list of three million names. that They've been able to record three million Jews who have been killed. But then behind them, what intrigued me the most were these blue binders. In these blue binders were 2.2 million pages of records. But there were gaps in the wall. Like, like the binders weren't all together. There were binders and binders, and then there was a little gap. And then there was a gap here and a gap there and a gap there. And I'm, I'm wondering, what are the gaps for? And so I had to ask. And the person said, well, that's because there's still more to be discovered. And see, in that moment, I realized no matter how tragic I thought the Holocaust was, it's actually even more tragic. It, it's bigger than I thought. It's worse. Well, we're told in the book of Revelation that God has a list of names. It's not kept in a room or a hall, but in a book, in the book of life. And that book records not <laughs> tragedy, not destruction, but the names of people he is saving who will spend an eternity with him. Here's our problem, though. We have gaps in our knowledge about that salvation. Whatever size, however great, however big you think salvation is, the reality is, is that it's bigger. Salvation is bigger. We have far too small a view of our God's saving work. When Pastor Sam invited me to come this morning and speak to you, he said that you guys were going through the book of 1 Timothy, and he asked that I would pick something that would coincide and kind of fit in with your guys' series. And so I began reading the book of 1 Timothy. I, I read it over a couple times, 
And there's this verse, this one verse kind of smack dab in the middle of the book that kept speaking to me. It's 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, and it says this. It says, great indeed, this is Paul writing, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He says, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the world, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And it kind of hit me that if you miss that, you miss the whole book. If you minimize that, then the rest of the book means nothing really to you. The fact that those words are true is the reason Paul is writing in jail. It's the reason he tells Timothy and the church to pursue holiness. It's the reason that they overcome the, the persecution that they're facing. It's the reason they fight the good fight. It's the reason they're in spiritual warfare. It's because God is great. If you minimize that, if you downplay what God came to do, and the God who did those things, you begin to lose the battle. You, you lose the battle, the moment that you're wanting comfort. The moment you're tempted. The moment you're selfish. The moment you want to build your kingdom. If you have such a small view of God, you lose that battle. Andrew Murray, a pastor, a South African pastor in the 1800s, he says this. He said, as we seek to find out why, with such millions of Christians, the real army of God that is fighting the host of darkness is so small, the only answer is lack of heart. The enthusiasm of the kingdom is missing, and that is because there is so little enthusiasm for the king. See, one of the most important things we can do is understand the greatness of our God. And the one of the most dangerous things you can do is downplay his salvation. That, in many ways, is why Isaiah writes chapter 56. Chapter 56 is kind of a weird chapter. I mean, if you begin reading the book of Isaiah from the beginning, chapter 56 seems a little bit out of place. Like chapters 1 to 39 kind of primarily deal with Israel's sin. They're, they're constantly rebuked for their idolatry, for their lack of righteousness. And, and yet, then you get to chapter 40, and even though God says, I'm going to punish you and discipline you, you get to chapter 40, and then Isaiah from 40 to 55 says, but I'm going to save you. I'm, I'm going to show you grace. I'm going to love you like a child. It's going to be okay. And the way I'm going to do that is by sending this, this suffering servant, this, this famous suffering servant who's going to uh, bear your, your kind of your sins. He's going to die in your behalf. He's going to give you his righteousness. And so we hear the gospel and you think, okay, just end it there. 
right? Like that's good enough. Climax, end of story. I mean, listen to the last couple verses of chapter 55. It says, for you shall go out in joy and led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. All the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. I mean, that's the good news right there. Just stop the book right there. And yet Isaiah goes, nope, 56. Because Isaiah says, you don't know the half of it. I'm just getting started. That's not the fullness of God's great salvation. See, there's three kind of gaps that Isaiah thinks the Jews would have. The first is concerning the width of God's salvation, or, or who is saved. The second kind of gap has to deal with the depth of salvation, or, or the changes, or the things that God is concerned about in the people that he saves. And the last thing, the last gap that Isaiah thinks we might have is concerning the benefits of salvation, and what God does for those he saves. But here's the thing. Isaiah doesn't present each of these kind of gaps in our understanding one at a time. Instead of presenting each one of these three things one at a time, he kind of presents each, all of them, three times. He, he, he works a little bit like a Baroque musical composer. Now, if you're familiar with music in the Baroque period, the way a composer would work is he would kind of present something very simple something that you wouldn't really be impressed with. It's just ordinary at first. And then he kind of tweaks it. He does a little variation. He adds a flutter here. He changes the key. He does these amazing musical works to this simple tune. Mozart did this, the song Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Yeah, Mozart actually said, I think this song is brilliant. And he, he wrote 12 variations on that very song. It's actually what made the song famous. And so that's what Isaiah is doing here. He's, he's like a, if you want modern term, he's, he's throwing a remix, okay, at this song. And he's going to remix it and remix it. And every time he adds a little bit of change, the song gets better and better and better. So listen to the original melody again. Here we go. Verse 1. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. The first problem Isaiah thinks the Jews might have is concerning the depth of their God's salvation. See, if chapters 1 to 39 deal with the sin of Israel, and chapters 40 to 55, we see that, okay, well, God's going to save them anyways, a temptation would be to believe that God really isn't concerned about the way they live their lives. I mean, if even if they're full of sin and idolatry, and God saves them anyways, well, then just, okay, go on living the way you were living before. But Isaiah is saying, no, no, hold on. Salvation doesn't just change our external situation. It also changes our internal lives. See, when Isaiah writes, keep justice and do righteousness, this is his way of summarizing all of God's commands. 
the Torah. God's instruction can be summed up in keep justice and do righteousness. But notice what he says here. He says, keep justice, do righteousness, so that soon my salvation will come. No, it doesn't say that. It says, keep justice and do righteousness for soon my salvation will come. You have to get the order here. It's really important you understand. Salvation is not based on works here, but salvation does effect or produce good works. It's only because I'm saving you that you can keep justice and do righteousness. I mean, Isaiah is full of these promises of salvation despite Israel's sin. I mean, listen to this, okay? Isaiah 46, verse 12 and 13. Isaiah writes, or this is God speaking to Israel, Listen to me, you stubborn heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. God's saying here that his saving work will enable Israel to obey him. One theologian put it this way. He said, the righteousness that chapters 1 to 39 called for, but that the people couldn't keep, can produce by means of the righteousness of God that chapters 40 to 55 revealed. See, those who are truly saved by God are able to put to death sin in their lives. The question, though, is how, right? <laughs> That's what we want to know. Those indwelling sins, how, how do we crush them? Well, he says in verse 2, he says, Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. There are a couple reasons, actually, God instructed Israel to keep the Sabbath. The first one was so that they would remember that he created them, right? God created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh day. And so like God, he would instill rest in his people and, and they would remember his creating work. But the second reason is actually so that Israel would remember that God saved them. Listen to Deuteronomy 5.15. God writes, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So I want you to remember that I'm saving you, God says, and that you're mine now. Don't you know what I brought you from? I brought you out of Egypt, that place of slavery and despair. And that power, that power to pause and remember can change us. See, God's grace gives us motivation for obedience, and then God's grace also gives us the power to overcome disobedience. See, when God promises you that he's going to save you, he instills in you the Holy Spirit. His very own spirit is at work inside of our lives, and it's transforming us. It helps us overcome sin. It helps us defeat the powers of temptation in our life so that we become more like Christ. A little while ago, I was trying to think of a way I could share the gospel with my two-year-old daughter, Emma. 
And I'm like, okay, how do I, how do I share the gospel with the two-year-old? Uh, and I'm realizing, okay, you know what? What we do as a family when we discipline Emma is we explain to her that she is receiving a consequence, that her actions deserve consequences, and so she is receiving the, what she deserves. She's receiving a consequence. And so I thought that's a great way maybe of describing the gospel to her. And so I sat her down, you know, we're reading the Bible together. I'm, I explained to her, Emma, you know what? Jesus actually died so that you don't have to have any more consequences in your life anymore. And I'm like, great, I'm killing it. Dad of the year here. I'm doing awesome. Anyways, we go away. Next day, she flat out disobeys me. And so I pull her aside. I'm explaining, Emma, you need a consequence now. And she goes, Daddy, Jesus took away my consequences. (laughs) And I realized, not so great dad, but also I only explained half the gospel to her. See, the full gospel is that, yes, Jesus took away your consequences, but part two, Jesus now enables you to live a life so that you don't deserve any more consequences anymore. See, God hasn't just saved you. He's saved you to change you. Jesus is coming soon, Isaiah says. So live like it. The second problem or the second gap we have in our understanding or that Israel would have is that since they received this promise of freedom, of salvation, while they were in exile, right? They were taken off to a different land. They were living in captivity. They were away from the promised land, from Jerusalem, the place that they were meant to live in. They could be tempted to think, okay, I know what salvation means. Salvation means return to exile. But Again, Isaiah says, no, 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 it's bigger than that. Look at verse 2 again. He says, blessed is the man who does this. Or or another translation puts it, happy is the man who does this. When you are saved by God, you don't just spend an eternity with him. You live in happiness, in joy. And I think the world needs to know that. This is a joy, happiness that is not dependent on external circumstances. This is joy because of who I am in relation to to the God who saved me. So you're not just free, you're also blessed. But the third problem, and I think this is the biggest problem that Israel might have, the biggest gap in their understanding, is concerning the width of salvation or who God saves. See, Israel might be tempted to think, okay, because we sinned anyways, like the rest of the nations, and yet God is still saving us, well, then you know what really matters? You know what God really values? is Jews. It's those who belong to Israel. And Isaiah says, no, 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 it's wider than that. Yes, the path is narrow. That leads to salvation. But the door is open wide. And he hints at this in verse 2 as well. He said, blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast. See, he could have written very easily, blessed is the man who does this and the son of Abraham who holds it fast. But he doesn't say that. He says son of man, or literally to the Jewish ears, they would hear son of Adam. See, Isaiah is saying, 
it's not based on birthright, this salvation. And he makes it really clear in verse 3. He says, Let not the foreigner who joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. See, it's, salvation is not based on having the blood of Abraham in you. And as we'll see in a second, it's not based on being able to pass that blood of Abraham on to your next generation. Even the eunuch is saved. Salvation is available from a, for anyone who comes from the line of Adam, which is everyone. The invitation is open wide. So are you beginning to hear? Salvation is bigger. Listen to the melody again, though. This time modified. Verse 4 and 5. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Here's a question for you. How can the eunuch be saved? I mean, if you would have been familiar with God's commands, you knew eunuchs were not allowed to be saved. Deuteronomy 23 makes it very clear. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. You're a eunuch? No, not in. Now, this is not like accidental castration, okay? This is not like you can't just have children. You need to know something. This is deliberate rebellion against God. See, God has decided that his salvation would come through the line of Abraham. And so if you are saying, no, I actually want to get snipped, you're saying, God, I don't want in that plan. I actually think that that's important. I can do things my own way. And so God says, okay, you're not part of my plan. You're no value to me moving forward. Then not welcome. You're not allowed to be a part of my people. And if that sounds shocking to you, which it does, and I think it should, then this should sound even more shocking. Now God's saying, Isaiah is saying, God doesn't save people based on their abilities to serve him anymore. <laughs> it's, not, it's not based on what you bring to the table. It's not about your skills or your talents or your resources or your influence or your fame. God's not picking you based on your inherent ability. He's not excluding you based on your shortcomings. And this should be good news. This is good news to the parent who's struggling to find out how do I raise these children so that they love the Lord? This is good news to the student who's struggling to get by in school, who wants the dream job, who wants the fame and recognition and the letters after their name. This is good news to the employer or employee who's trying to climb the ladder of hierarchy and make a name for themselves. This is good news for the evangelist who's trying to share the gospel but afraid of rejection and feeling like a failure. This is good news to the unbeliever who's been an unbeliever their whole life and time is winding down and they wonder, what can I bring to the table? 
God's not going to pick me. See, you're not chosen based on your inherent value. You don't, aren't picked by God because of what you accomplish. Instead, what does God value? Look again at verse 4. Thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. You hear all those references to God? He actually goes on in verse 5. I will give in my house and within my walls. It's all about God and his name. What does God value? It's a relationship with him. God saves not ultimately for what we'll accomplish, but for our depth of relationship with him. Do you actually believe that, though? I know it's hard for me to believe that. Like, do you actually believe that loving God is more important than telling a hundred people about God? Do you believe that actually worshiping God is more important than reading every John Piper, John MacArthur book and increasing your theology? Do you actually believe that living purely and holy and righteously before God is more important than serving him in kids ministry or youth ministry or as a greeter or in any other ministry combined. Now, I'm not saying these are mutually exclusive here, right? I do believe that if you love God, you will serve him. But you have to, again, get the order right. See, you can serve God and not love him. But if you love God, you can't help but serve him. For God, what is of primary importance is that you love him and you walk closely with him. Not just saved, but relationship. And then look again at what God does for those people he does save. Verse 5. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name. There we go. There's the name of the Holocaust Museum, Yad Vashem. Better than sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. That phrase, monument and a name, we actually, it, its background comes from the book of 2 Samuel. There, one of David's sons, Absalom, is uh, aware that he has no children. He has no one to pass the family name onto. And so in order to preserve his legacy, in order to make sure that his name is not forgotten, he decides to build for himself a monument. A monument. Well, now God says, I'm actually going to build you a monument. Not, not like an actual statue. You don't get a statue of yourself in heaven. okay? But he is saying... I'm going to build you, or I'm going to make sure that you have as though it were a statue there. It, it, it's rock solid. It, you have a secure foundation in my family. I will remember you. You will have a legacy. I mean, he says this to the eunuch, to the eunuch who has no chance and completely decided to rebel against God of having any children. He doesn't just give him a monument and a name. He gives him a monument and a name in his house. In my house, God says, you will have a monument and a name. The eunuch is not a second-class Christian. It's one family right there in his house. And thirdly, it is an everlasting name. The one who has nothing to offer spends an eternity with God. 
I know I've used this illustration with you before, but this story of the eunuch receiving a monument and a name from God himself reminds me of the story of Mephibosheth. Do you remember that story in 2 Samuel chapter 9? Mephibosheth is a, is a cripple. He, he's part of uh, Saul's lineage, the lineage that actually opposed David coming to the throne. And his name literally means one who scatters shame. And so what happens? Well, David actually eventually becomes king. Saul is killed. And now what a king would normally do is he would wipe out everyone who was part of Saul's line. That's what a normal king would do. So David should have gone out, seek and destroy mission, found Meshibetheth, and put him to death. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, no, 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 Mephibosheth, you come here. You live with me. You are absolutely of no value to me. Every time someone looks at you, they are reminded of Israel's shame. This this battle that we lost, that we should have never lost because of our idolatry. You you bring nothing to the table, Meshavetheth. But I welcome you. And not just, you just don't, aren't part of my family. You eat at my table. You're, You're not wise like Solomon. You're not handsome like Absalom. You're not strong like Joab. You're not beautiful like Tamar. You're just a helpless cripple. But it doesn't matter. You sit at my table and the tablecloth of grace covers you. What I think David did to Mephibosheth is what God does to the eunuch and it's what God also promises to do to us. We may bring nothing to the table. And yet God says, come eat at my table. Salvation is bigger. Listen to the last variation of the melody. Verse 6 to 8. And the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will yet gather others to him besides those already gathered. If the eunuch can't contribute to God's future plan, Well, the foreigner is the one who comes from the wrong past. The foreigner isn't from the line of Abraham. They don't know the Ten Commandments. They're idolaters. They're immoral. They oppose the God who created them and want nothing to do with him. They're, if you like, the people that you think have no business being saved. They're maybe the people who show up to church smelling like alcohol, all tattied up. They're the two men who show up holding hands. It's the lady who's wearing a hijab. Or or maybe it's the other type of person. It's the person who has the dream job, who's super wealthy, the beautiful house, the perfect kids. You feel like they have everything. There's, There's nothing else they could want. You go, that person can't be saved. They won't want Jesus. 
Those people, God says, yeah, they're the foreigners in my book. And I'm calling them to myself. Rosaria Butterfield wrote a great book on hospitality called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And in that book, she gives the story of her son following Thanksgiving. They, they just had Thanksgiving with their, uh, their, their family, and they kind of opened up the doors to everyone in the community. People are eating on the trampoline, on the floor, on counters. Like, their house is packed. And yet, her son asked one of his friends who they had over for Thanksgiving. And he said, two chairs. What do you mean, two chairs? We only put out two chairs in our family. And the son's like, well, why? And this was their answer. It makes us feel uncomfortable to have more people over, and we don't want to ruin our family dynamic. We don't want to ruin our family dynamic. So we just have two chairs around the dinner table. I wonder whether intentionally or maybe just unintentionally, we've put out two metaphorical chairs. Maybe our churches have. But maybe it's, it, we do it because of the way we um, put on certain ministries or, or, or types of songs we sing or choose not to sing or the ways we allocate money. But maybe we are excluding people from coming to the king. Or maybe we do it in our own lives. Maybe we do it because we avoid certain places to go shopping, for example. We think, oh, those are, those are different people. I, I'm not feeling okay with spending time with them. Maybe we do it by not having certain people over for dinner. Or maybe we don't spend play dates or, or reaching out to our neighbors because we just think that just makes us uncomfortable. Or I look at them and I go, I don't think God's going to really save that person. You need to know something, okay? The Great Commission, this famous verse, I think we misunderstand it a lot of the time. The Great Commission is not to save as many people as possible. That's not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is to save people as different as possible. That's what the Great Commission is. Go out, make disciples of all nations, all people, all ethno-linguistic groups. See, God's plan, God's great idea of salvation, the way he is going to magnify his glory in this world is not by saving the most number of people. It is by saving people as different as possible. See, I think this, there's this idea even that has made its way into this church that we have in our Western society, that Christianity is a Western religion. We think, I shouldn't really share the gospel with different types of people, people who are like me, because maybe I'll be imposing just my, my social or ethnic culture down their throat. That is absolutely bogus. Do you realize that by the year 2060, it is estimated that there will be more Christians in China than in all of North America. Do you realize that by the year 2060, 40% of the world's Christians will live in Africa? Okay, Christianity is not a Western religion. 
People who are most different from you right now in the world are the people who are coming to salvation. There is a movement of the Spirit in people who are unlike you. Those are the people, Isaiah says, God is trying to reach and save. I think if, if we have this view, if we ever look at someone and go, I don't know if that person can be saved. We just need to repent. God's not saving people like you. God didn't save you because you are you. There's nothing special about your ethnicity or the way you live your life. God is calling all types of people to himself. And he's not just calling them, he's using them. Okay, this should balance what I said about the eunuch. God doesn't save people because of what they bring to the table or because of their abilities. But after God does save someone, he can use them. Look at verse 6, look at the second half. He says, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord. That word minister he later calls them, he says, you'll love the name of the Lord and be his servants. That word minister, that's a word used for Levites. Levites were a particular clan in Israel whose special and privileged job it was to, was to serve the Lord 24-7. That's what they did with their life. They, they, they were, they're the ones who made the sacrifices. They're the ones who worked in the temple. And God says that special privileged job that was reserved for the Levites, I'm opening up to the foreigners. See, God is going to save the outcasts and then he's going to transform them so that they will spend their life making his name look great. He says those people, again, who are going to minister to him and be his servants, the foreigners, they're going to be people who keep the Sabbath. Again, we hear this word Sabbath. You need to realize something. If you were a foreigner at the time and you walked into Jerusalem on Saturday, their Sabbath day, it would be the strangest thing in the world. I mean, when my family and I spent time in Israel, for us even then in a secular already, a secular society, Sabbath day was just weird. I mean, just think about it for a second. An entire nation would spend their whole week, really, getting ready for this one day, this one day when they would stop everything and worship God. One day of not working, that's a day missing out on building your kingdom, and instead, what do you do? You make God's name look great. And the foreigners are going to do that. They're going to say, okay, it's not about my kingdom anymore. It's about God's kingdom. I take a day and I worship him. People you think least likely to be saved sometimes become the people most influential in God's kingdom. So God saves people, he transforms them, and then he blesses them. He says again in verse 7, These I will bring to my holy mountain. I will make them joyful in my house. Again, we hear that they will be full of joy. He says, secondly, their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. He says, I'm going to allow a substitute to die on their behalf. I'm going to save them. I'm going to impute my righteousness into their lives. And then thirdly, he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. He doesn't just save them. He puts his ear right up to her lips. 
And he says, talk to me. Ask me something, because heaven's storehouses are being ready to be poured out for you. Salvation is so much more than living in the promised land. It's so much more than just living for forever. Our God, he is creator, he is savior, and he's gatherer. Look at verse 8 one more time. It says, The Lord who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Salvation is wider and deeper and bigger and better and fantastiker and superior than anything else you could ever have imagined. Salvation is bigger. At least it was supposed to be. But it wasn't. It wasn't. Fast forward 700 years, and it's not what Isaiah said would happen. In fact, the very opposite thing is happening. All you have to do is go up to the Temple Mount, the place that was supposed to be a place of prayer for all the nations. And what do you see? It's a marketplace. It's busier than the mall on Black Friday. This place where the nations were supposed to be gathered. Do you know where they were setting up these tables and exchanging money and selling off all their livestock? Do you know where that was happening? In the court of the Gentiles. In the one place where the foreigners were allowed to come and worship God, that one place was being used as a market. Why? Why wasn't Isaiah 56 coming true? Well, it's because the suffering servant hadn't come yet. Remember, Isaiah 56 only happens after chapters 40 to 55. It only happens after the suffering servant comes and gives his life for the people. But then that suffering servant, whose name is Jesus, does come. And it starts. Isaiah 56 begins to happen. He throws out the money changers. He's flipping tables and tossing chairs. He, he says, I have other sheep that I need to bring in to my people. He heals the blind and the lame, the people who were outcasts. The blind and the lame, they weren't allowed in the temple. Jesus says, no, no, no. They're welcome in too. The outcasts are coming to me, so he heals them. Jesus then engages with adulterers and tax collectors and Samaritans and centurions. The people you said, they have no business being saved. And then he dies on the cross. He forgives our sins. The curtain that is sealing off our entrance into God's presence is torn. But he doesn't stay dead, right? He rises from the dead. He gives his followers the Holy Spirit. And then he sends them out. Go. Go from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so what do you hear at the very end? Well, we're given a glimpse of it in Revelation. Revelation 5. We get a picture of what's happening in God's throne room. And what do you see? Or better yet, what do you hear? Singing. 
It says in verse 9, and they sang a new song. Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. It's different words, but it's the same melody. Salvation is bigger. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the immeasurable, infinitely gracious and loving God. God, you would save us, rebellious, hard-hearted people who want to build our name. Thank you. God, give us your heart, I pray, for the lost. Help us to see that you love people who are not like us. You love to show off your grace so that we see lives change and go. Only God could do that work. God, help us to not only reach the lost, help us to live lives before you that are righteous and pleasing in your sight. God, thank you. Now, Lord, we are excited to sing. To sing, salvation is better. It's bigger. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.